Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Begin transmission in 3, 2, 1. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month, I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. I'm Greer Jackson, and as we enter the darkest depths of winter, the days are getting shorter and the nights longer. Or at least that's how it's supposed to be. But since the invention of the light bulb, we've been working towards the end of night. But does this matter? I'll be investigating this month on Naked Astronomy. Happy Christmas, by the way. I couldn't not say it since our publishing day falls on this very merry day. If you're anything like my family, you've probably pickled yourself in port and are unable to move from the amount of turkey you've eaten. But maybe you're by a window enjoying your food coma. And if so, what do you see? If it's five o'clock, you shouldn't be able to see a dicky bird. But I bet you can, all thanks to light pollution. 80% of Northern Americans and Europeans now can't see the Milky Way, and that means the 9,096 stars that you should be able to see with the naked eye are no longer visible. Light is a miracle invention, and of course it's allowed us to do wonderful things, but it's also becoming a problem for us, especially smartphones. Many of these uh, screens have quite bright light, and some of the blue light might impact your hormone production or the sleep hormone. So it actually sets your clock off a little bit. So in the same sense that being outside in the morning helps your sleep, having very bright light in the evening will probably delay your sleep pattern and making it harder for you to fall asleep at night. Norway's Mary Heising from the University of Health Research in Bergen. Essentially, all this light is resetting our body clocks, or circadian rhythms, driving hormones such as cortisol, a wakey-wakey hormone, up, and delaying their sleepy counterparts like melatonin. And this is not good for our health. John O'Neill from the MRC. We know that circadian disruption, as occurs during shift work, for example, is really bad for you in the long term. So there's a very strong association with chronic diseases such as diabetes, neurodegenerative disorders, a load of different cancers. But it's not just us humans that are suffering. Here's Bob Meisen from Britain's Commission for Dark Skies. Verlin Klinkenberg in the National Geographic a few years ago said that we've invaded the night as if it were an unoccupied country. And in fact, nothing can be further from the truth. Every creature almost in the world has uh, evolved for millions of years to have a day and a night. And if we give them a day and a day, they're certainly not going to thrive. So today we're going to be looking at how one community has reclaimed their night sky. But first, why has this all happened? Our fear of the dark, of course. 
You can't. I used to think that witches would come and bite my toes off if I lay on my belly and hung my feet over the edge of the bed. The real kicker was that this was the most comfortable way to sleep. But where does this fear of the dark come from? It's impossible to say with any precision when our fear of the dark began, but certainly night was man's first necessary evil. That's Roger Ekerch, historian from Virginia Tech, and you can see why it might be our first necessary evil. Picture this. You're a caveman, it's nighttime, and you're all tucked up with your furry skins, ready for sleep. <sighs> and then... What was that? You don't want to seem like a big Jesse, so you don't do anything. You just listen. Jeez, is that a... That's it. You're on high alert, except it's pitch black. You can't see a thing. So you listen all night long, praying for the sun to come up and that you won't get eaten alive. Your fear, initially at least, was what was in the dark. And then eventually your fear became of the dark itself. And this is an idea that Edmund Burke had. The famous philosopher and political theorist in the 18th century was of the opinion that our fear was inherent. But not all believe this to be true. John Locke's explanation was that there was no such inherent fear, that in fact children were told ghost stories in order to get them to go to bed, in order to control them, and hence this fear was instilled. Uh, more recently, psychologists have tried to bridge the gap. They have speculated that uh, there was no innate fear of darkness at first, but naturally, uh, deprived of vision, at a time when predators roamed free, uh, men and women, if they did not fear dark at the outset, they nonetheless quickly came to associate it with perils of all sorts, both real and imagined. So that by the time of ancient civilizations, uh, virtually all associated darkness with demons, danger, and death. And I suppose the solution to all this was to create light, to synthetically create light so we didn't have to live in darkness anymore. Yes, that was certainly one solution. An older solution was to rely upon natural light. Uh, the uh, fullness of the moon, when that was available, the Milky Way. But in time, as you correctly suggest, for those who could afford artificial illumination, that steadily increased. Even for the so-called lower orders, there were sources ranging from primitive oil lamps to rush lights, which were rushes, reeds that had been run through tallow, bacon fat, and burned up to an hour. 
those of more middling or upper economic status, of course, had recourse to candles, either tallow candles or if you were truly uh, a member of a genteel household, uh, candles uh, made from beeswax, the most expensive of all. And then, of course, electricity. Uh, but most homes in the United States, to take an example, uh, were not illuminated by electricity until the 20th century. As late as the 1930s, there were still many rural areas that relied upon more primitive sources of artificial illumination. And I suppose if we fast forward to today and light is everywhere, yet we still have this fear of the dark, whether it's crime and car accidents happening. But is there any evidence to suggest that's actually the case? I I think it's incontestable, although there are some fierce opponents of light pollution, the prime association being the International Dark Sky Association, whose work I greatly admire. But to contend, as some members do, that there is no association between darkness and crime is poppycock, in my opinion. The same with automobile accidents. However, I have heard of research that suggests precisely the opposite. Here's Rebecca Steinbeck from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I showed this to Roger too. We invited every local authority in England and Wales to give us information on uh, any changes that they had made to street lighting. And if they had made any changes to street lighting, what were the dates of those changes and what were the locations? And then we were able to use data from the police on uh, the locations and timings of road traffic casualties and crimes. And then we were able to model whether any changes in street lighting provision were associated with any changes in road traffic casualties or crimes. In the end, we were able to get data from 62 local authorities, which included over 25,000 kilometers of road where there had been some form of street lighting change, and we found no evidence that these were associated with increases in uh, road collisions or crimes. Where's your evidence, is what I'm trying to say, when clearly this study suggests that actually there isn't more crime associated or road collisions even with darkness? To that, I would say, for that one study, there are at least five or ten that contradicted. I would also say that it's a matter of common sense. Whether you're driving a car down a dark road that you do not know, or, in my case, walking in uh, Richmond, Virginia, a city with a very high rate of crime, it can be very, very dangerous. I was reassured by the fact that there was any number of street lamps. So in your opinion then, Roger, our fear of the dark is still justified? Yes. Oh, yes. To limit or in some cases entirely do away with street lamps would be, to my knowledge, 
the first example in human history whereby a widely used technology of proven merit had been rejected or constrained. Now on Naked Astronomy with me, Greer Jackson, we turn to the community who chose to restrain their light usage. There is an international campaign for dark skies, as Roger mentioned, who don't necessarily want us to return to the dark ages, but want us to think sensibly about light design. And at least in the South Downs National Park, it seems to be quite effective. Just arrived at the Lewis Light Festival and, of course, greeted by absolute pitch black. So much so that all my wires are tangled and I can't see what I'm doing. Good news, though. It is a starry night and not a cloud in the sky, which hopefully means we should be able to do some good stargazing. I was told there was a man in the moon. Maybe he's heard him. But before I did any of that, I ran into Graham Festenstein. And I'm a lighting designer, and I'm also the festival director for Lewis Light. From my perspective, our, our main thing is the glowworms. So we've been working with a scientist from Sussex University who's researching into the impact of artificial light on glowworms, and that's inspired us to do this installation. This is when we walked through, there were a series of sort of hawthorn bushes, and they've got lots of little green lights hanging yes. from them. That's right, yes, and the, the green, we've, we've been working with Alan to, to look at uh, uh, developing these so they actually look, approximate uh, glowworms. But what we've done is we've put the light installation at the bottom of the hill, and the idea here is to get people who maybe don't come out and do this kind of thing to come along, look at the lights, and then they can keep coming up here, and then they can come and look at the other activities, the astronomy and uh, the, the, the bats and, and the moths and, and uh, come and enjoy, just enjoy being out in the darkness. It's funny because you never really think about going out to enjoy the darkness, do you? But I decided to face my fear of witches biting my toes off and head into the night to see what I could see. Does everyone hear that? Mm. Oh. So, picking up a so that's us finding our dinner if we're a bat. There were no bats, sadly. What you can hear is a demo. But further up the hill, we could find its prey, moths. Oh, yes. Have you got so, a pot, Fiona? This is something called a lunar underwing, which is quite a common moth this time of year. Ironically, though, the cloudless skies I've been praying for meant it was so cold this was the only moth we caught. My favourite fact about these moths, though, are about why they swarm to lights. They've evolved to circumnavigate darkened landscapes using the moon, but when they see bright lights, they get confused and they keep trying to reorientate and reorientate to map out their destination. But alas, no amount of orientation is going to help them, so they just end up circling around these lights endlessly. It's sad, really. Looking at the craters in the moon. Ah. Further along, I finally found what I was looking for, though. The telescope looking up at the moon at the moment. We just had it on the Andromeda Galaxy. That telescope's as big as the sort of cannon you might fire somebody out of. 
the light festival is doing uh, dark sky friendly installations and all the things are here are really low powered and i think the moon's putting out more light than the uh, the, the light festival at the moment so right now it's fantastic we've got you know, lots of people looking through the telescope and enjoying the sights of the uh, the telescope of woe Dan Oakley from the South Downs National Park. And he calls it the telescope of whoa, because, well, everyone who looks down it makes that noise of adoration. I joined the so-called moon queue, determined not to go whoa, but the first thing out of my mouth? Oh, wow. Classic. It's like the moon's got acne, isn't it? Definitely get a much better idea of what Buzz Aldrin and... Everyone might have felt when they landed on the moon. Yeah. And I wasn't the only one enamoured. It looked fascinating. It just looked like a load of soap bubbles had popped on a, on a bar of soap. It was amazing. I guess you've never seen the moon in that way before. No. No, absolutely not. It, it's not made of cheese. That's all I can say. <laughs> Did you look as well? I did, and I thought it looked like cheese. <laughs> kind of Italian creamy gorgonzola cheese. <laughs> no wonder Wallace and Gromit wanted to go to the moon. Just a glass of red wine, I'll be quite happy now. <laughs> cheese and wine party. Although the moon illuminated the landscape around us, it was clear to me that this would normally have been pretty darn dark. And that's even though we were right on the cusp of the park, where dark skies reach towns and cities. Behind me, it was pitch black, not a fleck of light on the horizon. In front of me, well, rays everywhere. But it was more than that. The cities glowed. They bathed the night sky with an aurora. And this is what Dan Oakley kind of set out to change. When we became a national park... Part of that process was to consult with all the residents and all the different authorities to talk about the qualities of the park. And one of those special qualities was uh, tranquility uh, and dark skies. And so when we looked at our management plan, we noticed that our skies were getting brighter. Um, So we decided to do something about it and start this dark skies project. Uh, And we looked at various things we could do, and it was the International Dark Skies Reserve that uh, kind of ticked all those boxes. So we started mapping the skies across the entire South Downs and the South Coast, looking to find out where all the dark spots were, eventually put all the application together, uh, and then we submitted it in uh, last year, and we got it in May, uh, and it was fantastic news, and we were really proud of the, uh, the all the effort we put into it. You've made it sound like, you know, there's quite a lot of effort gone in here, but you took something like, was it 3,000 measurements over a few years, every night? Almost, it was more like 30,000. 30,000, 30, way 000. off there. Yeah, no. Well, yeah, it was, it, I mean, it was, um, you can only measure dark skies when it's completely moonless, so not like tonight where we've got the moon up, and when there's no, no clouds. So you can imagine how many times in the year that that happens. And the park is 1,600 square kilometres, plus the outside bits. That's quite a few nights. So we had a special sky quality monitor made up for us that could record at time interval. So we just set it at five seconds, and I just drove around the downs and recorded it over the over the all those nights and all those uh, cold mornings. Are you naturally a night owl, or was this a bit of a strain? Well, I, I, did, I thought I always was, but I, I really do think I am now. So I'll get, getting up in the morning is really difficult. So what classifies as a dark sky? What is a dark sky reserve? To be classified as a dark sky, you need to really be able to see the Milky Way with the naked eye. Uh, and the other good thing to see as well is the Andromeda Galaxy. If you can see those two things, then they call that an intrinsic dark sky. And in the South Downs, uh, you can see those really, really clearly. And you can see them even here now on the moonless uh, night in Lewis. You can just about make out the Milky Way. 
It wasn't just about taking measurements and saying, Bob's your uncle, we qualify. Actually, Dan had to get the council on board to change their street lighting too. Uh, well, they were coming to the end of all their street lights, so we all remember those horrible orange sodium lights, and they were really optically inefficient because they threw a lot of their light upwards, and that's that upward light that creates all the sky glow. So if you look at Lewis, you can see all that sky glow coming out now. I know we're in just the very tip of the very bottom of the dark sky reserve, aren't we? But you can tell a marked difference between areas of light and areas of dark. Yeah, yeah. The more light they put out, the more sky glow you're going to get. So what the when they did came to doing the street lights is they then put up more optically efficient um, street lights, which point the light downwards. And because that light's not going upwards and and uh, sideways means the sky gets better. So um, a lot of the local lighting authorities like Hampshire and West Sussex and East Sussex, they all were very, very good and they um, had a good regard for the National Park and its qualities and they put all those streetlights in. And because that's a requirement of the application process, it meant we could go ahead and do it. So you know, a lot of, a lot of thanks goes to them, really. It's a shame because the reason why I came here tonight was to hopefully see the Milky Way with the naked eye for the first time. Um, but alas, that's <laughs> it's not my night to be, I don't think. Because that's the idea of the Dark Skies Project, to be able to see the Milky Way with the naked eye, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, tonight, unfortunately, you, the whim of the weather and the moon. But um, when you can see the Milky Way, I mean, you know you're in a dark sky site and, you, and you, you do, you'll just smile when you see it. And if you go to some really dark places, you can start to make out some of the structure, some of the dark lanes, some of the dust. And, and that just elevates it even further because you, then you get a real sense you're in a galaxy. And that, you know, again, that feels like you, you're looking at your house, your home in a real good way. So what are your top tips for people who want to go out and see the Milky Way well, I would advise to yeah, pick your night carefully. Go out when it's when you know you're going to have a good couple of hours, cloud-free, when the moon's not up, uh, that you can go to some good sites. And there are plenty of places you can go just outside, uh, uh, you know, get outside of the towns. Wrap up warm. Don't underestimate how cold it can get when you're standing around. Um, you know, extra pair of socks, some gloves, some hats, all those kind of things. If you're taking a camera, always take a memory card and some batteries because I've done that a few times. I've been out for an hour hiking and then realised I haven't taken a memory stick with me. <laughs> Very disappointing. But also, I mean, have a look at some of the apps you can get for your phone. Have a go at looking to see what you're going to look at before you go out because that makes things a bit easier. Um, so, yeah, just little things like that to save you a bit of time because when you're out and about, and it's all very good looking at it, but you do get cold quite quick. I mean, so, uh, you know, do a bit of prep. It's nippy tonight. I'll give you that. Yeah, it's all right. This is all right. I'd say this is stage one cold. I've, I'm, I've, I've got to stage four in, in the cold with the snow. That's been cold. But, uh, yeah, today, tonight's all right. I can cope with tonight. <laughs> Sterling advice from Dan Oakley there, especially at this time of year. That's about it for today. A huge thank you to all my guests this week. That's Roger E. Kirk and Dan Oakley. The programme was produced and presented by myself, Greg Jackson. Keep the tweets coming in. I love hearing from you. The hashtag is Naked Astronomy or you can tweet me directly. It's at Greer Jackson. Have a wonderful Christmas and I will be seeing you in 2017. <laughs> <laughs>